Welcome everyone to a bonus edition of Monday Match Analysis. Today's episode is a conversation with Jeff Sackman. He is the founder and the creator of a website I use religiously to follow and cover this sport. Tennisabstract.com, a database with statistics, head-to-head results, and a lot of uh, a lot of important metrics and historical uh, database-like features that are uh, an invaluable resource, in my opinion. So I wanted to talk to Jeff not only about the website, which I'm sure uh, anyone who uses it regularly will really enjoy this conversation, but uh, if you don't use Tennis Abstract, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, we talk about numbers and analytics and data and how uh, how numbers could uh, could affect tennis. Obviously, tennis is a sport which is kind of behind other sports when it comes to metrics. When it comes to advanced analytics, I think if you are a uh, if you're a soccer fan or a basketball fan or a hockey fan. You can see that. You can see that in other sports. It's a, a much bigger part of the general discourse, how the sport is covered, how the sport is talked about. Uh, statistics, advanced statistics are more available. And tennis is is far behind. It's, it's very much in the Stone Age when it comes to the numbers game. It's something, it's a topic that fascinates me, and I was really excited. I have been for a long time to chat with Jeff about that. Also, some uh, some Australian Open talk just a little bit. Uh, we did record this before the Australian Open began, just to, to timestamp it uh, briefly. So without further ado, here's Jeff Sackman. We're joined for the first time by Jeff Sackman, the founder of Tennis Abstract, a database that I do not go a day without using. It's got player pages, stats, rankings, head-to-head data, and uh, blog posts, podcasts as well. And uh, Jeff has been a long time coming. I, I literally cannot, and I'm sure you've gotten this before, I can't imagine covering the sport without the resource you've created. So uh, I hate to, I know if you're like most people, you don't want to start by talking about yourself, but do you ever think about that? How it's like the fourth largest sport in the world and the website that you created on your own is kind of a, a vital part of keeping up to date with with the the history of it and the data well i i, I have to first say you really think most people don't want to start out by talking about themselves who are you talking to gil who are these people who don't want to talk about themselves uh i guess if i have to i will uh, I don't ever think about the, that. I uh, and I, I think one of the one thing that'll take a much a lot much longer time before it changes is that most people don't use my site. I mean, it, it's flattering to hear people people like you and people like Alex Bruskin and many of my friends talk about it because I know. I mean, like I've told many people over the years, I built this site to scratch my own itch. Like this is what I wanted to use. I wanted to follow the sport and I wanted to follow it my way. So that's where the site came from. And I know it, it, it does scratch that itch for a lot of people, and that's fantastic. On the other hand, I think if you went down row by row through people in Rod Laver Arena, even the hardcore tennis fans these next couple of weeks, like the people who care about stats, they're mostly looking at the FedEx or whatever leaderboards on the ATP site, and maybe that's enough for them. That's fine. But I mean, honestly, I'd much rather that the ATP and the WTA did 
a much better job on their site and delivered something that is what I'm delivering or better um, to everyone. So I mean, most people, most people don't dig deeper into the weeds and find stuff like my site. Um, but you know, since this is the state we're in, then great. I mean, I, I, I it's mostly automated now. So like, the, I, I'm not that different from you. Like a lot of mornings I wake up and check my site, see what's going on, see what the updated prob probabilities are, check out a head to head. It's not like I, I need to invest a ton of time in it every day. Um, but I mean, it's, it's fantastic that it's, it's gotten the, the kind of traction and helps people the way it has. If it's to scratch an, an itch that, that you've always had, I'm curious, what are the features on the site that you go back to most often? And what are the ways that you, that you most often use it? Um, the funny thing is I, I don't think a lot of people like the way that I, um, I show tournament draws because it's just a list of names and I, maybe I'm just, I've just gotten used to it, but to me, that's the way I want to see a tournament draw. I just want to see a list of names in order. I want to see what the probabilities are because that, that gives me just a one, one second, one glance snapshot of who the favorites are, what the close matches are in the next round, um, to me, it's all there. If I, if I look at the old fashioned, like the, with the lines and, and all that stuff, like it just, the seeds and qualifier indications, the traditional draw display, it doesn't do it for me. Like it, I can, I can read it obviously, but I feel like there's so much information missing there um, that I'm, I'm just used to seeing the sort of the, the probability map of the rest of the tournament. Um, and it probably came about because I don't, I'm not very good at web design and I just like tables, but since we've, since I've been looking at it for 10 years, that's, that's what I love to see. So that, uh, I guess that's it. But also I just, I love being able to slice and dice the data. So if I'm looking at a head to head and I'm like, well, maybe we don't care about the first three years of this head to head. So you filter it down to when one of the players cracked the top 10 or something, just uh, there, there's so many there's so many factors that go into every tennis stat you, you might want to dream up that you're always thinking, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And the way that the site is set up, you're always one click away from another variation like that. So you can kind of follow where your mind naturally goes without having to do a ton more work or without having to just give up and say, well, this is important, but I guess we'll never know. Or maybe I'll have to wait until somebody writes about it. Uh, it's all there. You can, you can do all that yourself. And to me, that that's the genius of sites like, like baseball reference, which is like a hundred times greater than my site will ever be. Like you are wondering about anything. If you're on baseball reference, you're two clicks away from the answer. It's just, it's incredible. And I just hope to do 1% of that. Yeah. So I have a friend in baseball analytics who, who works for a, a major league club and who is we, it? we like to compare notes, Jake Greenberg. What team does he work with? The Diamondbacks. Okay. Um, we like to compare notes about tennis versus baseball. And you know, Jeff, how that's going to go. Tennis is in the, the, the dark ages. Baseball is 20 years ahead of it. The, and I, I don't want to, with this conversation, lose the international audience that doesn't know baseball, but just to give a little bit of a flavor for those listening, baseball fans are interested in the rate at which the ball spins, basically an RPM. They are interested in, or they can have access to, I should say, the speed at which the ball leaves the bat. 
the average angle at which the ball leaves the bat. All of these things, it is so in-depth these days. Tennis doesn't quite have that. Why do you think it's behind? Well, there's two reasons. Um, one is what, what's been clear from as long as I've been doing this is that baseball is a team sport. Um, the financial incentives are such that like anybody who read Moneyball or saw the movie knows that the financial incentives are set up that if a team is willing to get smart, sort out the data, figure out what analytics are worth doing, then you can make money. Like there are millions of dollars on the table for teams that are willing to figure out the analytics. And when there are millions of dollars on the table, people usually chase them. <laughs> it's funny how that works. And in tennis, you can make an argument that there's some money being left on the table, but by whom exactly? Like, it, it, it's, it's not like, um, like Max Eisenbud is sitting in an office deciding who to draft to, you know, be his starting second baseman or his starting server for the 2022 season. There's just nothing like it. So if, if you really push, you can come up with some examples, like maybe players would be better off if they had better analytics. Maybe I'm not convinced, but there's an argument to be made there. Maybe um, sponsors would do a better job of selecting players if they knew better who was likely to become great. That's tough because sponsors are often picking their best players when they're 13. I mean, do we honestly think that analytics are going to tell us which 13-year-olds are going to be great? Maybe. I mean, it can't hurt, but it's I don't not, It's not. You're right, though. It's not worth it for Adidas to go exactly. those lengths to figure out who's going to be good. Yeah. So maybe there's some benefit in, you know, Nike developing this stuff for their existing players. I I don't know. But the point is there's, there's no clear benefit to, uh, there's no clear incentives for developing the analytics. So what it falls back to is do the tours care about providing something to their fans that there isn't a huge demand for? I mean, in, in our little world, it feels like there's a lot of demand because I mean, you might talk to 10 people or 20 people in a day and maybe 15 of them would say, oh, I really want better stats. But I mean, let's be honest here. This is a very selective sample. Walking down the rows at Rod Laver Arena next week, 99 out of 100 people won't even know what you're talking about. So it would be great if the tours did it. I think it would attract a lot more fans who are the sort of baseball crossover fans who want to know about launch angle, but it's just not there. I promise there are two reasons and I'll try to be a little briefer with the second one, but the, the second reason is there's just no history of stat keeping. And this is what I've discovered this, the last year, my big project has been building out this database of historical women's tennis data. And going back to baseball, I know when I was growing up, there was this giant book called Total Baseball. And before that, um, even when our parents were growing up, the giant books called the Baseball Encyclopedia. And I mean giant, they're like 5,000 pages, six point type on every page. And you want to look up any player in the history of baseball, you can get every season they played, what positions they played, what all their batting and pitching stats were, every team record, every manager's record, just I mean, millions and millions of stats in a printed book. And that stuff was available in the 60s. There were people compiling these databases in the 1920s. That's the history of baseball. Baseball fans really care about that stuff. When I'm digging through old newspapers, I found a Philadelphia Inquirer from, I think it was the 1920s. There was a whole page, literally a full newspaper page of minor league box scores. Philadelphia is not even a minor league town. It wasn't, there, there were no minor league affiliates. People in Philadelphia wanted a full page of minor league box scores. I mean, I, I can't, I still can't even wrap my head around that, but that's, that's what baseball is to people. It's the numbers. So I think the historical component is more important than we give it credit for. Just 
if you grow up as a baseball fan, even if you don't know the first thing about analytics, if you grew up like me before Moneyball came out as a movie, then you still, you lived and breathed the numbers. Even if all you cared about was RBI, which is, you know, the worst anti-analytical stat ever, you're still getting used to thinking this player is better because they did this thing that I can't necessarily see, but at the end of the season, I can count. Tennis fans don't think like that. Tennis fans are going to see, you know, player A beat player B really badly. And they're going to think for the next year, player A is a lot better, period. They saw it. He's, he's great. And unless there's a giant difference in the numbers or somebody really talks them out of it, or they see another match, they're not going to change their opinion. And that's just not really how baseball fans think. So it's, it's going to take a major change before the fans start demanding what tours could provide. And until that happens, the incentives just aren't there coming back to, I mean, the original point that I made. Yeah. So much, so much to unpack cultural. I agree. Is there a simplicity to a mono mono sport where people just don't thirst to, to really understand who's good because you have a winner and a loser and that's enough. I, th- I think that those are interesting points, but I want to go to the, the first one about incentive with the money. If, if we're following the money, there's two things I can think of. There's coaching, which I think is, is beginning to kind of get more into the analytics. And I, I don't, I'm, I still don't have a clear picture of what that's looking like at the high, highest levels of the game. But I think even more so there is gambling. And that's a, that's a booming industry and there is money on the line there because if someone can figure out an edge and well, I guess there's two sides to it. The people making the lines want to stay ahead of everyone else. So they don't lose money. And then the people against the books obviously want to predict tennis better than the books. So, so what do you make of those two areas of incentive? Well, you're definitely right about gambling. Um, I generally just steer clear of it because I'm not, I'm just not super interested um, but yeah, I mean, I, I talked to a number of people on, on both sides of, of the bets. Um, and, and yeah, they, they really do thirst for the data, especially, especially bookmakers. Um, they want to have all the data they can have. And there's some, some gamblers who are super smart and super technical and, and they use all the data that I'll put out there too. So, so that's a great example. I mean, if there is, if there are financial incentives, then that's where it's coming from. The downside to that is that, there's no incentives for public data. The, the people who contact me from, from bookmakers and want data, like they're willing to work with the fact that I make all my data public. They'd rather have it than not have it. But you know, in their perfect world, they'd pay more money and they'd have it all to themselves. Um, and that's something that baseball has managed to avoid. There, there was a sort of touch and go moment maybe 15 years ago or so when pitch FX per, first rolled out that a few teams wanted pitch FX to be... Uh, to be kept just to major league teams, not to the public. And this is the pitch speed, pitch break type of stuff that has turned into the stuff you were mentioning before. Um, And I don't know exactly what the behind the scenes machinations were, but that data stayed public and it has stayed public. And that's been a game changer. That means anybody like you or me or any college kid with with some technical skills, they can do something really cool and, you know, change baseball. so I'm not sure that the incentives are in place for that to happen in tennis, but clearly there's work being done. The, on coaching, I'm really interested in that too. I, I think there is some room for coaches to, to, to make improvements. On the other hand, you know, every once in a while, SAP or whoever sponsors a thing about um, coaches using tablets. I think the WTA has done it more. And 
I'm wondering, maybe you can think of something, Gil. Have you ever seen a coach using a tablet when there wasn't a sponsor involved? No. That's what I think too. <laughs> yeah. Now, is it is it legal? I'm I'm wondering if there are some regulations about. Well, I, I guess I guess the thing is this: you're not supposed to be able to speak to your player period, except in, in the WTA, you can. So I guess, I guess the ATP rules wouldn't matter because, yeah. uh, because you can't have communication technically. Except for ATP cup, they had a sponsor yeah. tablet right. thing last but, year. But I did before. see the screen Jeff on the tablet and yeah. it was, it was the Infosys stats that you and I can look at. And by the way, that's a good thing that Infosys has expanded those services to ATP events, it used to only be available at Roland Garros and the Australian Open. So, so that that's been an improvement just in 2022. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, so, we, what I wonder with with the bottleneck on coaching is is how much information coaches can pass on to their players. Because you and I can can look at some stats after the match and say, well, Zverev should have done this differently with his serve, or he should have hit more to this side, and. It's easy to say that stuff in retrospect. Maybe the coach sees it happening in real time, but then you hear what coaches actually say to their players mid-matches, and it's usually the most basic stuff. Like, it's basic beyond belief, and I don't say that as a criticism. I'm sure, like, coaches know exactly what they can and can't say to the players they're working with, but if that's the sort of level that those conversations happen... A coach can't go in and say, you know, if on the fifth shot, I need you to move one step forward and hit a little more towards the middle instead of aiming for the corners. Like no coach is ever going to say that to a player in the middle of the match. And ultimately that might be the kind of stuff that analytics can tell us is these, these small adjustments, the way that, you know, basketball players adjust the way that they defend against opponents. Um, if, if, if a player is, is figuring out how to defend, you know, Steph Curry, then they're going to I mean, spend a few days and work out the exact details. But if you have, you know, 16 hours to prepare for a match against Djokovic, then I don't think you're going to worry about those specific details. You're going to focus more on your own game, at least based on what I hear coaches say. I don't know what's happening behind the yeah. scenes. I know a lot of coaches and some players, they at least give lip service to the analytical stuff they have access to. So they're thinking about it behind the scenes. I just don't know how much potential there is for very, um, very in-depth stuff. Yeah, I have heard coaches talk about how some players hate hate it when you give them too much information. And they're yeah. like, they're like, stop, I don't need, I can't deal with this. And then I know like Andy Murray notoriously wants a dissertation on every opponent who he plays. So I know it differs there. And then I also think there's a, a difference between the short term and the long term, where I imagine there are certain trends that could be identified in the long term that might be much more digestible and almost actionable for a coach to give to a player. You agree? Yeah, I would hope so. Um, it's, it, it, it's tricky to know what those are. And the, 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 the thing that I wonder about, I've, I've, I don't know whether I've ever really sat down to try to figure this out, but um, it's easy to identify what a player's weaknesses are. I mean, at least at, at some broad level, you can look at most mm -hmm. players and say, this is their worst shot or whatever. Um, what I don't know if that is, is that where they should be trying to improve? Like if you're, if you're Riley Opelka and you have this monster serve and a weak return, uh, Gruskin and I were talking about this yesterday. Opelka seems like he has a lot of cheap points to pick up on his return. He's so bad on return. There must be some room to improve. But if you're John Isner and you've been working on your return for 
20 years and it's it's as good as it's going to get do you spend your time or your off season trying to get a little better on return on which you're bad or do you try to you know eat a little bit more out of your serve and be that much more dominant i don't know the answer to that question because i don't know i mean i know if you can improve your serve points one by half a percent or you can improve your return points one by half percent you pick the weaker side that that has more payoff but if you're trying to work in terms of hours like if you're going to spend you know 20 hours on court working on one or the other if you're isner do 20 hours on court working on your return even help at this point i don't know i mean i i think that would require a lot of sort of sports science studies that are really outside the scope of what i do and certainly beyond what i think anyone has done but I think it's an open question. So even if you do have the best analytical work done on what's happening on the court, I'm not sure that we understand exactly how that translates into the longer term. How should a coach work with a player? What should the player be working on? That's That would be super interesting. Um, we're just not there or close. Yeah. One area that interests me, and we talk about keeping data for uh, some parties keeping data for themselves. One of those is definitely in the tennis world, Hawkeye. And I think Hawkeye is probably the coolest thing as far as tennis analytics are concerned. My, my favorite data points, a lot of them come from Hawkeye when it comes to looking at average net clearance or average ground stroke speeds, RPM, uh, things like that, that kind of tell you about how someone is hitting the ball, for example, or, or average, uh, average height of bounce tells you a lot about a, a surface and, and that's a big thing in matchups, but the access with Hawkeye is, is pretty limited broadcast partners get some of that. I think coaches can get some of that, um, through tournaments, what do you make of, of Hawkeye? Do you think about the possibilities of that being turned into something that is, is user-friendly, is, is for the fans? I think about it, sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not optimistic at all because, like you say, the, the tournaments own the data. Uh, I had some conversations a few years ago with the USTA, and, and they were they were sort of on the brink of giving me an, giving me access to a lot of their data before IBM stepped in and basically said, we are IBM. No one else gets to do any analytics and quashed all that. So, I mean, yeah, I absolutely think about it. And the frustrating thing to me is like you say, some of these numbers are so interesting. I would love to have full data on things like net clearance and RPMs and all this stuff. And going back to the, the baseball analogy where you started, not only do fans our fans interested in this stuff like launch angles and, and speed off the bat, but we know how much it matters. Like you have people figuring out, you know, if you can, if you can increase your exit velocity by one mile an hour, then that translates into an expected slugging percentage of Y points more. I don't know what the numbers are, but somebody does. We in, in the research community know what those numbers are, mm-hmm. or we know that, you know, there's a certain range of launch angle. You can have obviously too, too high of a launch angle or, or too low. And we just don't know what those ranges are for, um, for tennis, or we don't know what the, what the combinations are. So it, we know that in say more RPMs is better in some ways, but is there a point where there's too many RPMs or if you aren't hitting the ball deep, then too many RPMs are counterproductive. I mean, we can theorize about that stuff, but we don't really know. It wouldn't take a ton of data to figure it out, 
but as you point out, we don't have access to it. So I know that like the, the Tennis Australia people, there's some, um, some people there doing interesting work with the Tennis Australia's Hawkeye data. Uh, there's not a lot beyond that, but there's a tremendous amount of potential. And like, when we're comparing to baseball, like that's the frustrating thing is that baseball has all this amazing data, but it isn't just the data. It's the fact that data is public and there's this huge community of people developing research solutions, analytics based on it. Tennis has the same data. I mean, Hawkeye data is basically the same stuff. In a way, mm -hmm. it's better because in, in every batter pitcher matchup, there's only one point of contact, sometimes zero, often zero. In tennis, there can be you know 10 or 12 points of interaction between the two players. There's so, so much potential to research that stuff. And I, I just think about like Cam Nori right now, like a player who has one approach on the forehand side, one approach on the backhand side. Like what effect does that have? I have no idea, but that would be fascinating to look into with some Hawkeye data. We could get a sense of whether players are, you know, thrown off balance or if they're able to react and handle it. But I mean, we're, we're, we're so many steps from being able to know and, I mean, I, I do dream of the day that a Hawkeye, you know, announces their GitHub repo or they send me an email and say, you want to take a look at our data? Here are the keys. But, you know, honestly, that it's just not going to happen. As long as tournaments are basically the owners of their data, then you've got to get all the tournaments to work together, which means it would have to be the ATP or the WTA who would push it forward. And yep. I mean, I've spent a lot of years watching how ATP and WTA interact with data and I'm not optimistic based on that experience. Well, we can, we can dream something like depth. I just, for example, we all agree. It's so important to hit the ball deep. And we say someone like Novak Djokovic has incredible depth. We could see theoretically if he has per, maybe the best depth, maybe the third best depth over the course of a season, like that is out there. And, or it, it, or at least it can be out there based on the data collection. So it's just the possibilities, the more you get your head spinning, it's uh, th there's a lot there. But what I wish, what I wish the tours understood better is all this stuff is it's PR it's news stories. Yeah. So you mentioned, you want to know if Novak is the, the best over the course of a season. And that's, that's the more important headline stat, but imagine Novak comes out, plays his first round match against whoever he's playing, who is he playing? Oh, Kachmanovic. Okay, that'll be interesting. Um, he comes out against Kachmanovic and we can say, Novak Djokovic hit his average backhand within X meters of the baseline, which is his best single match stat since 2016. Just hypothetically, let's say that happens. That's a big story, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if, if we knew that, then there are so many questions we have right now about is Novak ready? Will he be distracted? Give me that stat. And the whole story changes to, wow, not only is he, is he ready, he's playing better than ever. I mean, PR people should love that stuff. And the more stats you have, I mean, the more you're likely to find something like that. Like that's why baseball fans are always talking about, you know, Aaron judge just hit the hardest hit ball of 2022. Well, well, 2021, we don't know 2022 yet, but the hardest hit ball of 2021, that's a news story. So it's, it's not, there's not a direct financial incentive, but if there is going to be an incentive for the tours, it's realizing that there's, there's so much they can sell their players based on that they don't even have an inkling about right now. One thing that tennis do, does a little bit better is the single match stuff, or I should say at least 
tennis is more interested in the single match stuff. So you'll see how many winners and unforced errors someone hit or something simple like that, but, but it's out there and it's available for the most part. What there is not a lot of, and tennis abstract is a big help for getting some of this is again, over a season, the stuff that we obsess over in all other sports, whether it be as simple as who's going to score the most goals over the course of a world cup, whatever it is, these stats that are drawn out matter. I mean, tennis, like there's no engagement in that area, right? Yeah, not a lot. They've tr- kind of tried to do that with like the FedEx leaderboard stuff on the ATP site, but yeah, there's not a lot of that. And to me, again, what that gives you is context. Like if, if someone plays great, I mean, no matter what stat, you're, what sport you're talking about, people care about what's happening today. So you look at the end of the match stat sheet, you look at the box score in baseball and you say, no, okay, Contavite hit 30 winners today. And that's better than yesterday. Or that's better than the, the, the girl she beat. But what I care about is, A, what's the rate stat? So, I mean, 30 winners is great, but is that two sets or three? Is that, you know, 13 games or 30? But beyond that, once you have the rate stat is how does that compare to her season? Is that even a good day for her? I mean, I remember there was, I think it was six years ago or so, there was the Djokovic-Simone match at the Australian Open where Djokovic hit, or maybe it was Simone that hit 100 unforced errors. And that was the big headline number. Simone hit 100 unforced errors. And my first thought was, well, weren't they playing for like five hours? I mean, is that, is it even bad? I'm not sure it's bad. Like it, it sounds bad. I mean, he can think of a lot of bad moments, but if you play for a, for five sets and hit a hundred unforced errors, like I'll bet a lot of people would do that. We, they just aren't, people aren't watching as closely as Djokovic, Simone. So you need to have the season long stats to do that work. And we don't have it for unforced errors and winners and more advanced stuff. Uh, but ultimately it comes down to the announcers at the match at the end of the match, being able to say that Contavite was great. She was this much better than she's been all season, or she won despite being not as good as she was in Guadalajara or whatever the story is. But I mean, that that's what analytics are. I mean, it's just being able to say, we know how good this is because we can compare it to other performances, whether the same player or similar players or the competition. And that's really hard with, yeah. uh, with what tennis stats are. Right. Or instead of saying Berrettini has one of the biggest forehands in the world, you could say he has the highest winner rate or the third highest winner rate. And by the way, to explain, I think the rate thing is important. If you track every time, if you track every ball, that's where you actually get the, the stats that um, put it in the proper context. I think that's so important because not a lot of tennis stats are put into rates. I noticed on tennis abstract doesn't say aces it's ace rate. So how many serves, how many aces, there's your ace rate. And uh, I think that that's an important point Uh, in terms of the stats that are popular that we do see in a box score. Do you have any adjustments for that? Like, do you have your tennis box score? If you could change it, I, I don't have, should we, have a great one. Should yeah. we say like, this is what it usually is. It's usually first serves in percentage, first serves one, second serves one, break points converted. Winners return on first points one. Yeah, return points one, which I find pretty useless. And then, uh, and then winners on forced errors if you're, as, unless it's like a 250. Yeah, yeah, you have winners on forced errors. Although even with uh, the higher level tournaments right now, I think, 
the ATP, like the Infosys stats you mentioned, and the broadcasts on tennis TV are reporting different numbers for winners and unforced errors. So there are two separate tallies going on, and sometimes they're not even close. But yep. I mean, first, Sounds right. first off, I just take I take every single one of those numbers and turn it into a rate, like like you see on tennis abstract. I don't have winners and unforced errors for everything or anything really on the site except for the match running project. But uh, the I turn everything into a rate. And what I'd probably do is I'd put it next to the season average or a tour average. So on the on the single match pages for the match charting project, if you mouse over any stat, you get the tour average, the tour average on the surface, the player's career average, and the player's career average on the surface. So I realize most, most stats beyond the very basics people just aren't familiar with, which is fine. I mean, everybody's got to start somewhere. I made some of these stats up, so I don't expect people to know what they are. Uh, so you need to have some kind of grounding in what they are. So I mean, I don't think people even know what typical ACE rates are. I mean, they might say, you know, okay, clearly 20 ACEs is a good day. One ACE, not a great day, fine. But if you play a two set match and you hit eight ACEs, is that good or bad? I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Based on that question, even I don't know. It depends on how many points were, were played and so on. Uh, but we need, I think that needs to be there all the time. One of the great things that uh, there's a website called Baseball Savant that's run by Major League Baseball. And that has all these advanced stats we're talking about. And a lot of the stats, they have a color coding from like bright red to a deep blue, where if, if, they're, if they've got some made up stat, like a defensive efficiency type stat then if it's really good i think it's a, a a deep red if it's really bad it's a it's a deep blue and obviously there's a range of values between those so you only have to look at the number it's like okay well this is 47.3 what does that mean well it's slightly red so it's a little better than average or if we compare to his teammate down here who's 42.1 is that still above average oh that's just barely red so you only, all you need is the color and the number. I could probably do more of that with my site, but I mean, I think we could benefit from that in general. Just, I mean, to me, it's all, it, it's all about context. I mean, even if we're talking about non-analytical things, like I always want to know, like, what is the context here? We can, we can go on about any, any topic of the day, but really the question is, how does this compare to whatever we can compare it with? How, how does it stand up against other players of the past, other situations of the past, other tournaments of the past? And I mean, that's more important than anywhere else when you're talking about analytics. I'll tell you mine, Jeff. Breakpoints converted as it is, the, it makes no sense because you can have break opportunities in one game and it went to five deuces and you broke serve. And it says you're one for five, but really you were in one return game and you broke, you did it, you're successful. Yeah. Or you can have break opportunities in five games and every time it's unlikely, but every time you had only one break chance and you only converted, you only broke serve in one of those games, you're, you're way more likely to be in a losing position in the match. If you're one for five, but you blew it on five return games versus if you just had a long, if you had a couple break chances and you broke. So that stat is totally broken. It doesn't work at all. Right. Yeah. And then yeah, I, I yeah, I actually, I wrote that article for Tennis Magazine 
I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, and I crunched the numbers on that. And I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't anything like groundbreaking there because generally, like if, if, if you get a lot of break points in one game, you're going to get a lot of break points throughout, but you're right. Like there are some gaps. I think Nadal was the player who had the, had the strongest like rate of breaking or getting break points per game. So when you, when you cast things that way, I mean, this is 10 years ago. So of course, Nadal is going to look even better than he looks now. Uh, he looked even better when you, when you cast things in those terms. And I think that number was a little bit more predictive from year to year too. So there's some, there's some benefit there. So I'm, yeah, I'm on board. Second thing I love, especially as an analyst where I'm trying to figure out what is happening in a match are rally length stats. Who's winning the rallies that are, that are ending in between zero and four shots. Really, there's no zero shot rallies, but you know, double uh, thoughts. <laughs> that's that's true. But well, that's the question. Is, is I mean, it's not a rally. It's a service shot. But yeah, you know, basically- people ask me this all the time. Let me just say, for the benefit of all your listeners, the serve is a shot. In analytical terms, anytime you see references to a one shot rally or four shot rally, the serve is a shot. Maybe you don't think the serve is a shot. Maybe you don't want the serve to be a shot. I don't care. The definition is set. You can't change it now. Serve is a shot. Serve is a shot. Okay. Yeah, the, the rally length stats I like. I think they're informative about what's happening or what's happened in a match. So those are my two for the most part. Yeah. Besides would, the Hawkeye I, stuff. Yeah, I, I like the, the rally length stuff too. And one thing I find interesting, I think it was the Shapovalov match in the ATP Cup final. Um, Shapovalov ended up pretty much running away with that one. But at one point early in the second set or middle way through the second set, <coughs> he and Carreño Busta were basically tied in the shortest rallies. And that's the sort of thing that nobody really expects. If, if you're going to predict who's going to do better in short rallies, it's Shapovalov. I mean, obviously, right? Uh, but on the other hand, everybody in tennis, with the exception of maybe Diego Schwartzman, has converted their game into something first strike-ish to the extent they can. Uh, the only players who don't are the ones who just can't do it and have to fight things out other ways. So everyone's trying to win quick points and everybody does. I mean, even the, even Schwartzman is getting, you know, 20, 30% of free points on his serves most of the time from serves that don't come back or serves that come back weekly. So everybody's winning a lot of the really short points. Maybe that, maybe like the Shapovalov first strikiness shows up in three and four shot rallies. And, and it does often, but the difference in that match was the, the middle range, the five to eight. And if you were to ask someone on the street, well, not on the street, nobody knows about Carreño Boost on the street, but if you were to ask somebody in the stadium, like who's going to win the five to eight range, they'd probably pick Carreño Busta because they think Shapovalov is going to dominate the shortest range. But I mean, like I say, the shortest range is going to even out. Like there's rarely going to be a huge gap in the short range. So that middle range is where you can set yourself apart if you're not slogging things out. So those aren't like the signature serve plus one and the point shots for Shapovalov, but they're the ones where he didn't let things get, get dragged down. I mean, when they did yeah. get dragged down, that's where Karenio Busta ended up winning. Yeah. There are misconceptions for sure. Uh, someone, I was talking to someone and, and, and they were like, Djokovic must win the long points. That's why he's good. Right. If you really look at a lot of his matches, he's dominating the short points because he's hitting deeper turns and he's yeah. neutralizing the plus one play. So it goes both ways. It's not just offense wins short points, defense in return can, can neutralize uh, the, the short point battle as well, which is important for a, a player like Novak. Um, 
Okay. I want to ask you sharp left turn here. You have, uh, you have Peng Shui up on the website and it's been a while since she's come up on, on the show. So I just wanted to bring her up again. Uh, I know it was an issue that, that you are following and passionate about. What do you think is next in this story? It's obviously been overshadowed by not only just time elapsing, but also everything going on. Uh, but, but where do we go from here? Because it's, it's been pretty quiet on that front. I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I had a bigger platform so that it didn't get quiet. I mean, it's, it's infuriating to hear the stupid crap we talk about every day when we could be doing that. On the other hand, I don't really know what the tennis world's pressure can accomplish. I mean, it, clearly the WTA managed to make some noise and that went up the chain. So the fact that the WTA took a step that ended in like the EU and the White House, you know, making diplomatic requests, that's amazing. That blew my mind. I didn't think that would happen at all. Um, and I'm, a, I, I, I'm afraid I'm not quite sure who puts pressure on, on the Chinese at this point. I mean, it's, it, 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 for fear of getting way too serious about this, I mean, when you look at, at horrible things that have happened in the past, you often want to point fingers and say that we should have known that there are these people who should have stepped in in Rwanda or these people who should have stepped in in Europe in the 1930s. And yeah, I mean, there were opportunities. Absolutely. You, you, can, you can look at the historical record and say, people should have done things differently. Fine. But here's an opportunity, not Peng Shui necessarily. Maybe, maybe Peng Shui isn't important enough to, to justify a, you know, something geopolitically dangerous as, this, as taking on China would be. But I would say the situation in, in Xinjiang and, um, the, and the way that China is treating their ethnic minorities, I would say... If it might not be as bad as some of the other examples of, of, of um, genocidal behavior in the 20th, 20th and 21st century, but it's in the conversation. There's really nasty stuff going on and it has been for a long time and most of the world has known about it. So why is the world not taking on China more aggressively? I mean, that's a really tough question, but I mean, China is too powerful. I mean, it's too important to the rest of the world. We're too interconnected. Um, China's got a super powerful military. They're not afraid to use it. They've got really good hackers. They're not afraid to use them. So taking on China beyond just making a diplomatic comment is, it carries a lot of risks. So whether you're talking about Peng Shui or you're talking about another dissident or you're talking about ethnic minorities, then there, there's a huge cost benefit to weigh. And unfortunately, human rights usually loses in, in those conversations. Um, it's it's horrible, and but I don't know how to change that. I mean, I'm I'm a tennis stats guy talking about this stuff. Of course, I don't know how to change it, but I I, I don't know what the next step is. I don't know how you put pressure on someone to put pressure on someone who will eventually put pressure on the Chinese because right now they're in a mode where they're going to make this Olympics happen. They're going to do absolutely whatever they have to do, no matter how many people have to be put in detention with coronavirus, no matter how many people have to be put in jail so they don't fly a banner supporting anything, anything the Chinese government doesn't approve of, uh, anything that they have to, um, anything they have to censor online, they'll do it. They do, they will stop at nothing to make this go off smoothly and make themselves look good. I don't know how you fight that. I, I wish I did. I got nothing. Yeah, I don't have that much to add. I, I do think that uh, I, I feel the same way in terms of in terms of the amount of power that the tennis world has at this point and the fact that the story is has stagnated. I don't know 
Uh, I don't have an answer about what can be done about that either. It is interesting to see when the Olympics comes around, what the cycle is going to be. Is it going to reemerge? And also, I just haven't heard much about the WTA in China. I haven't heard follow-ups about, uh, is, it, is it on television there? Are the Chinese players still getting funded? Uh, there's a lot of questions that I had when this was first happening and blowing up, and I haven't seen any follow-up reporting or kind of original information coming out. And I'm just kind of, uh, I guess, staying tuned for it, but also just wondering kind of what, what the status is. So, yeah, I would, I mean, obviously I don't really know anything about this stuff, but I mean, it, 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 it seems like in the long run, maybe tennis is gone from China. I mean, I don't know, but, um, but it'll take some time before we get any answers on that. But in terms of the Chinese tennis federation and so on, authoritarian countries really care about their sporting profile. And obviously China is as, they might be as, as extreme a case as any country we've ever seen. Um, they want to host the Olympics. They want to win lots and lots of medals. They're developing sports programs in sports that no one ever knew about in China before. I was just reading Li Na's um, biography this week and, and apparently nobody knew about tennis where, in, in Wuhan when she was growing up. They call it fuzzball. They just saw a fuzzy ball. The courts she played on were dirt courts, not clay, dirt, packed dirt. Uh, and this is, I mean, she's younger than I am. So this, this is like 30 years ago that this is, this is tennis in China and look how far they've come. And they're doing this with every single Olympic sport. I mean, I, I, I live in Norway and I'm hearing about, you know, Norwegian coaches being drafted to help the, the Chinese become better biathletes or, or cross-country skiers. Like they didn't care about that before, but once there's an Olympic medal on the line, they do. So when there's Olympic medals, when there's Asian games medals and stuff like that on the line, then they'll keep funding it. I mean, maybe, maybe everybody will forget about this in a few years and there'll be a, a, a premier mandate or 1000 WTA 1000 in Shanghai or Wuhan again. Uh, whatever it is, I, I can't imagine China deciding from there and we're just going to give up on this one. We're not going to fund our players anymore, but you're right. I mean, those are interesting questions to, to keep an eye out for. And I'd be really surprised if we get anything at all until at least the Olympics is over and probably probably a long time after that. We will see. Um, another transition probably probably should have re, re, uh, re considered my orders of questions, but let's go back to, uh, to tennis and, and the Australian Open. I want to uh, do a quick comparison of the ELO rankings and also if you could give like a 20-second explainer on or primer on ELO rankings and, and how they should be used and, and what they mean. And then let's compare them to how we actually feel about the contenders uh, for the Australian Open. Okay, I, I give you no guarantees on 20 seconds, but I'll do my best. <laughs> um, okay, so the idea of ELO ratings is you rate players based on who they beat, um, not, not when they win matches. The way the ATP rankings work is based on, you get more points by winning a final than a semifinal and so on. With ELO ratings, if you beat Djokovic in the first round, you get the same number of points as you get from beating Djokovic in a final. 250 Grand Slam, doesn't matter. Beating Djokovic is beating Djokovic. Uh, all that matters is your opponent's rating. So it just, the, it's a made up number, but everybody starts with 1500 points and the number of points you move from winning or losing a match depends on a the quality of the player you're playing against. So if you if you lose to Djokovic, your rating doesn't move much. I mean, if if you're me and your rating is like 
seven, unless that's a bad example. Um, if, if you're a, the number 100 player in the world, your rating might be, let's say 1700. Djokovic's is 2100 or so. Uh, if you lose to Djokovic, we know you're going to lose to Djokovic. The idea is we knew before you were not as good as Djokovic. You weren't even close. Nobody expected you to win. Losing gives you no more, gives us no more information about you. So your rating doesn't change very much. The whole idea is with every match played, we get more information about a player. The more new information we get, the more we change their rating. So beating Djokovic is huge. Losing to him, not huge. Um, the advantage there is for one thing, they're simply better at predicting match outcomes than ATP rankings or WTA rankings, just way better. If, you, if you're a gambler and all you have is one system or the other, go with ELO, it's not even close. One reason for that, apart from the whole, the, the philosophical difference of who you beat versus when you win, um, the main reason for that is ELO ratings tell you how a player is doing right now. I mean, if you beat Djokovic yesterday, in a final, then it will be in the next Monday's ELO ratings. If you're, you know, better programmer than me and you update them every day, it doesn't even have to be a final. Like what your match yesterday affects your rating today. The ATP rankings, everything is equally weighted for the last 12 months, or in the case of COVID-19, they're equally weighted for like 13 years. I don't know how the system works now, but it's, it, it, it stretches out over even more time. So effectively what that means is a player's ATP rating or ranking is where they were at six months ago. It's a weighted average of how they were playing six months ago because it has last week's results, but it also has 51 weeks ago results. So it's not bad. The ATP rankings are fine at what they do and, and they work for, for tournament entries, but they don't tell you how a player is playing right now where ELO basically does because the number of points you get for winning a match yesterday effectively ends up being more than the number of points you get from winning the same match six months ago. So that's how it works, why it works. I'm glad you didn't follow the 22nd rule because that was good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was, uh, I learned some things about, about ELO that, and I, I used it and I learned some things. Uh, okay, let's go. Let's start with the women, and we'll we'll run through the the, the top ten. Um, Barty's no, number one. She's uh, she's my favorite. She your favorite? Yeah, not, not necessarily, right. and and it's not necessarily a pick. It's just you know we're kind of going through uh through tiers of contendership. Um, bit tough draw. She she has Osaka, but we we'll get to her later. Uh, Contivate's number two, and this goes kind of to. ELO ratings valuing recent performance, but there was an off-season wedged in the middle. So uh, do you think that's too high? Uh, I, I want to say yes, but I'm not sure you put ahead of her. That's always the, the trick is, is Contavite doesn't look like a number two player to me, but I'm not sure who else does. And to your point about the off-season, there is a factor there, but I, I, I think I looked at this and you would expect that rankings would be less rankings like this would be a little less predictive early in the season because we don't know what players did in the off. I mean, did they spend their whole time in the Maldives? Did they work really hard? I don't know. Um, but I think I looked at this and there wasn't uh, there wasn't much of a difference. It isn't like there were a bunch of surprise results mm -hmm. in January. So maybe I mean, I should probably look at it again or write it up, but uh, I'm not sure there's much there. So, I mean. I don't see a good reason not to let Contabai be number two. Okay. Uh, I like the number three a little bit better than her. And by the way, just to clarify, hardcore ELO for, for anyone following along at home, not regular ELO because uh, okay. Aussie's on a hardcore. Uh, Muguruza is someone who, who I think 
might be one of those players above Contivate for me. And I, I like her as a, a top three contender. And yeah. uh, by the way, you don't need to expand on, on everyone. We, we, you know, we can run through it yeah. pretty fast. Okay. Um, Osaka is, is number four and I, I'm, I'm there on that. She looked good last week. We know what she's done. We know she can blow anyone off the court. And I think with Osaka, I, I would have to check, but I think there's a penalty built into her rating right now. I and mean, this is this is not pure ELO. Like ELO was invented by a Hungarian mathematician for chess, and it's a very mathematical thing. And it, I don't I, I don't claim to fully understand every aspect of it, but um, but just for tennis, I built in uh, some penalties for missing time because if a player gets injured, we don't know how they play when they come back, right? Uh, but effectively, the average player is worse after an injury, at least in the beginning. So if a player misses a lot of time over certain thresholds, I dock their ELO by 100 points or a little more than 100 points um, until they come back and start playing matches again. When they start playing matches again, I let their rating move more. So if somebody comes back and they're playing great, then you know their ranking might bounce back very quickly. But it does drop. And I think there's a there's a 100 point penalty in there for Osaka right now. So she if she hadn't missed so much time in in 2021, then I think she'd be number two. But I'm not 100 percent sure of that. Yep, I think I think that would that would make sense just from from trying to uh, think about the the hard court results that that she was able to uh, obtain. Um, okay. I'm going to run through the rest of the top 10 and let's see if anything kind of strikes us as, as high, low. The next is Victoria Azarenka, Simona Halep, Arena Sabalenka, Maria Sakari, Karolina Pliskova. Um, and then Anja Burr rounds off the top 10. Obviously you have Sabalenka that kind of is dealing with the serve issues. I know you're a big fan. She's probably too high uh, in terms of too low, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if, if anyone jumps off to me as, uh, too low off of first glance. Yes. So Sabalenka is a, a good example of how the system works in that she lost a lot of points for losing to Kaya Yuan. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. a bad loss that, and in terms of the way I was talking about it before, we learned a lot <laughs> by her losing to Yuan. That, that tells us she's not playing well at all. Maybe she'll bounce back, but at least on that day, she's playing horribly. I mean, I don't have the Rebecca Peterson loss in her, uh, in, her in the ELO ratings yet, but that'll be another pretty substantial dock. So that's why she's there. I think pretty recently she was as high as number two in both overall and hardcore ELO and deservedly so, but she had a bad Guadalajara. She's had a couple of bad matches here and that, that tells you something. So I, I don't know. It, one thing to keep in mind when looking at these is look at the actual numbers. And one thing that's been true of the WTA for, I mean, we're going on at least a few years now is there's not a big gap here. I mean, Looking at the hardcore ELO, there's there's 30 points between Barty and Contavite, another 40 points between Contavite and Mugurusa. That means something. I mean, that it's not a huge gap, but I mean, it's something. But then after that, it's basically 10 points to Osaka, 20 points to Azarenka. That's still a little bit, but then Azarenka and Halep are basically tied. Sabalenka and Sakari are basically tied. They're basically tied with Pliskova. She's basically tied with Javur. I mean, yes, they're 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 on the list, but really, I mean it's foolish to pretend like those numbers are so precise. Like right. if, if you round everything to the nearest 10, 
that probably gives you the amount of precision that we really know. So those those ladies are all tied for sixth in my mind. And that that feels about right. I don't know how yeah. to put, you know, a, a strong and rising soccery next to a resurgent Simona Halep. I mean, I buy that they're about the same. That seems right to me, but I'm not going to pretend that I know which one is a little bit better or which one's likely to win if they play in the quarterfinals next week. Yeah, the best way to do this, and I, I know I know I do this a lot. I know uh, I know Gruskin, who who we've given too much airtime to today, um, <laughs> does this as well. Is is you put players in tiers? So definitely a big fan of that. I mean, you can go down the list. I mean, I would say Sviantek, who I didn't name because she was eleven, Bedosa, who is um, thirteen. Both players who on a you know both both players who I wouldn't be too surprised if if they went all the way and made a huge run compared to someone who's, you know, Azarenka at number five in, in this ELO ranking. So yeah, it is, it is tight. Yeah. And to, to give an idea there, the gap between number one, Ashley Barty and number three, Muguruza and hardcore ELO is basically the same as Muguruza to number 13, Badosa. So yeah. to, to say that Badosa is a contender, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think I was even picking her as far back as the U S open to make a big run. Uh, it's, it's you're not making a super bold call here, according to Elo. I mean, it's a little right. bit bolder than saying Muguruza, but I mean, she's, she's in the mix. Number, this is, this is a very good era to be number 13. If you're going to have to pick an era to be number 13 in. Not as much on the men's side, right. Where I would be, shocked if let's go to 13 one two three five seven uh schwartzman yeah uh, you know i just i that that won't happen if although he, you know i i i agree with schwartzman but we take out a couple of the players who are not playing i've got federer team and brooksby all above mm-hmm. them in the ratings so if you go Auger Aliasim at 14, Berrettini at 15. Are you going to be shocked by either of those two? It's just now I would say I'm, I'm splitting hairs. I, I would say Felix, there's an unknown factor of, of if, is he really as good as he looked last week? And if the answer is yes, then no, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if he can, if he can just play at that level for Berrettini, the, the weird thing about him is I feel so comfortable that he'll be in the quarters or he'll be in the semis, but Berrettini Medvedev, I, I just can't, that doesn't, he doesn't seem very threatening to the players who return his serve well and out rally him at a very high rate. Zverev, Djokovic, Medvedev, like Berrettini doesn't tend to beat them. And, you know, so, so that's the, that's the thing about him. It's like you go far, but you're a, in my eyes, he's a big underdog at the end. That sounds right to me. Yeah. But he still is. He's number 15 on this list. So that, I mean, that's a, that's a strong number 15. Yeah. If you, if you think it he's, is. if you're not surprised to see him in the semifinal or even the final. And he's probably one of the weird cases. I could check it, but he's probably higher in clay and grass known traditionally as the two polars. And then hardcourt's probably his lowest elo. Yeah. Let me see. It looks like he's about number six or seven in clay. And then number four on grass, which you'd expect. So yeah, that's, that's right. And yeah. that seems like that's just a matter of time, right? He just needs to get a couple big results on hard court that he hasn't had yet compared to the other surfaces. Yep. Seems like the kind of thing that that would change for sure. 
So Medvedev, Djokovic, and Zverev on the top, and they are the only three with a two in front of their number. The rest is one. And it seems like there's a, there's a gap between those three and everyone else on hardcore, especially if you look at 2021, pretty much every event was a copy paste. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and again, yeah, it's so important to look at the numbers there. Like I, I'm surprised more people haven't, haven't commented on the fact that Medvedev has been number one for a little while in mm-hmm. the hardcore ELO, which means he's the favorite in my, in, in my forecast for the tournament. Um, but I mean, they're separated by four points. So, I mean, let's just say they're tied. <laughs> okay. There are shockers here. I think for, for some people, yeah, <laughs> which is, which is, and I'm going to, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to ignore Federer. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't Sinner. think he's likely to win. No. <laughs> and I'm going to ignore Federer and team who are still high. Sinner is next. Alcaraz is after Sinner. So, I mean, Elo loves the pro the, they're not prospects anymore. That's not fair. Elo loves the youngsters who had really strong, you know, ends of 2021 after that is TT Pass and rude and Nadal. Um, Brooksby Rublev, do you, do you really, do you feel that Sinner and Alcaraz have a better chance to win Australia than some of the more traditional guys or, or the guys like Rublev and Tsitsipas who are, uh, higher in the rankings? I don't know. It's tough. Um, it's, it's something that I struggle with, especially with Alcaraz. Alcaraz is a good example of where one place where Elo might not be great is, if a, so one of the things about ELO is because we're basically, we're, we're updating our, our, our rating with every match played early in a player's career matches count for more. I mean, because mm-hmm. if you think about Djokovic now, we know who Djokovic is. Like he's played a thousand, whatever matches, like no matter what happens in his next match, we're not going to learn that much about Djokovic with Alcaraz. He hasn't played that many challenger or tour level matches. Like, I don't know what the number is, but it's probably 10% of Djokovic. So we don't know very much about him in those terms. So every match we learn a lot more. So what that means is if, if he does something like the next gen finals, where he reels off five wins against pretty credible opponents, then according to Elo, we've learned a lot about him and it's all positive. So players who are on a winning streak, especially very young players who are on a winning streak, Elo gets super excited about them. (laughs) Um, And probably too excited. So okay. Alcaraz seems high with Sinner though. I mean, he, he's been high for a long time. I mean, he, Elo had him in the top 10 before he was anywhere close to the top 10 in the ATP rankings. Um, traditionally, anybody who cracks the top 10 on, on the Elo makes the ATP top 10. Um, there's a few exceptions, but very, very few in history. Um, so Elo, te- when Elo makes a big call like that, it tends to be right. It might be early, but it tends to be right. So I want to separate those two. Alcaraz, I'm willing to say, okay, this okay. The, the system is is maybe a little overexcited. What's, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Stephanie Kowalczyk, who worked with Tennis Australia, and she's written some academic papers on tennis. She's stats on the tee. Um, she's, she's a lot better at the hardcore statistics than I am. Um, she uses a lot of tools that I don't even understand. And she's done some analysis of using, uh, of using ELO ratings, but with margin of victory. So essentially 
you treat every game as a win or a loss or every set as a win or a loss or even every point instead of every match. So instead of saying Alcaraz was undefeated at the next gen finals, you say Alcaraz won 70% of his games or 66% of his points, whatever I'm making up those numbers, but whatever they are. And what that means is that, that means that every player has some recent losses. I mean, when I think Stephanie's goal in doing that was not what we're talking about here. She wasn't trying to fix this problem, but it is one way of approaching it. Um, it's in, that way you don't have young players who are on these undefeated streaks because nobody's on an undefeated streak in tennis, except for really tiny ones. You lose a lot of points, you lose like a lot of games. That's just the nature of the beast. So that's one possible solution. But Sinner, he, he, at least at the end of the season, he wasn't on a winning streak. So I think he's legit. He's whether you want to get into slam experience. I mean, I don't, if, if Sinner Nadal is a quarter, I don't know when they're supposed to play each other, but let's say Sinner Nadal were a quarterfinal. Um, I don't know whether I pick Sinner then in my heart, I, I would have a hard time picking Sinner in that match, but I also wouldn't be surprised if he wins it. I mean, that, that's the thing about young players waiting for a breakthrough. We know he's going to break through. I mean, we're pretty, it, it seems like he's pretty sure to win a slam at some point. I mean, that's a big call, but for any player, but it seems likely. So whenever he breaks through, I'm not going to be surprised for any individual slam. I don't want to say like, this is obviously the time that Yannick Sinner is going to make his first final. That, I mean, you can't say that about anybody, but he's at that level where you're not going to be surprised if this is the time. Yeah. Well, sometimes this happened, this stuff can happen really quickly, sometimes slowly like Medvedev. Uh, but I'm kind of on Elo's level on Alcaraz. I'm very excited. Yeah. You know, okay. so yeah. I, well, I, again, I, I don't know if I'm, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not that far off from it. I'll, I'll say that. So. And again, you got to look at who he's compared, who you're comparing him to. Like you, there are reasons to doubt Sitsipas right now. I mean, mm -hmm. Kasparud on a hard court. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm Nor I live in Norway, so I can't be anti Casper, but still, I mean, you can't get too excited. Nadal, there's doubts about his health. Rublev, I mean, you really think Rublev is going to win seven matches in a row? Ajay Aliassim, you made the point before. Berrettini, we're still waiting on him to beat big players. You go down the list, like, uh, which of those guys are you willing to say he's definitely above Alcaraz? I mean, it's, it's a tough time to make those judgments on the ATP. Yeah, it is. And, and that's why I think people uh, have a misconception right now that things have been blown open with the uh, vulnerability of Federer and Nadal. Um, because, and, and team going, going out with, with injury last year, because, uh, Medvedev and Zverev and Djokovic have been unbelievably consistent and difficult to beat. So I don't, I don't see the men's side as some kind of newly wide open thing. There's a lot of takes going around that if you're like a Pablo Carreño booster, you're licking your chops right now. And, uh, I, I don't really see it that way. I'm glad I'm not, not following those people on Twitter. I haven't heard that <laughs> take, but I'm not sure about that. I'm, the, I'm I guess saying, that... I guess, I guess. Let me be more specific than to name drop one player. There are uh, for the the lost gen or the mad gen, um, the thirty year old gen. Uh, there's there's some sentiment that now this is their chance. I don't think I, it's true. I don't think it's right. Yeah, I, I I guess you can. The way I would make that argument, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. Is okay. Let's say hypothetically, Djokovic gets kicked out of the country. I mean, mm -hmm. it could still happen. So then you have not big three, you've got a big two and the big two is not including Djokovic. So you've got Medvedev and Zverev on opposite halves at that point. Uh, so would you pick any of those players to beat Medvedev or Zverev? No, I wouldn't pick any of them. But 
Zarev in best of five, Medvedev can, you know, lose his mind in any warning. People can beat them. They're not guaranteed. Yeah. And they don't, that's the thing. Like it's more clear on the women's game than the men's game. But I've been saying this for a decade now, like to win a slam, you don't have to beat the best players. You have to beat seven players and you don't know, we don't know who they are yet. So I was just, again, I, I was looking at Lena yesterday and her last slam, she didn't beat anybody above the 20th seed. So she beat some good players, including a young Belinda Bencic. But I mean, she didn't have to go through Serena and Victoria and Victoria Azarenka. She, she, you have to beat the players who are in front of you. So would, would you be shocked if Zverev got knocked out by like her Koch in the fourth round and Medvedev lost to Alcaraz in the quarterfinal? I mean, you'd be surprised, but it isn't like, Federer and Nadal are out of 2012 Wimbledon. It's not that level of thing. So back in the big, the serious big four days, like if two of those guys lost, well, okay, the other two will play in the final. And maybe there, there's Sanga and there's Bavrinka and there's Nishikori and there's Del Potro waiting to, to pounce. So if you're carrying your booster, you don't, you don't have a chance. There's no chops to lick. But now if Medvedev and Djokovic don't make it to the semis, then Sure. I mean, why not Karina Busta? Why not Sinner? I mean, go down the list, pick whatever name you want. Why not Sebastian Corda? I mean, it, it is anybody's game. So it's just, I think it's more about the number of big names at the top other than, rather than who they are. Yeah. I think that's an, I think that's a great point. Once you're down to two superpowers, then a lot can happen. I, I agree with that, but then if you have three in there, that's 33% more. Is that math right? 33%. Yeah. Well, if you have three, <laughs> it's it's 50% more. Because um, you to increase three? from two to one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, you're right. In, See, this is very embarrassing. This let's, is... end up, let's end on that. Let's end on you schooling <laughs> me in, in math. That's just a fitting way to do this because uh, that's why that's why we have you on as as the dude who understands the numbers and and not me. I just read the numbers. I'm glad I caught the mistake. Your listeners would be doubting me pretty hard. I'm like, yes, one is 33% of two. (laughs) Look, I just, it's tough. You put it in a fraction and that makes 33. And when I don't think people understand the type of pressure we're under, there's, you know, there's voices in our ears giving us material there. There's distractions. We're all watching press conferences in Australia. I mean, we're looking oh at ELO God. ratings online. Like there's a lot going on that we simple arithmetic is it's not simple in these circumstances. This is, this is hard work that you do, Gil. Yeah. My heart rate's been like 120 for this entire hour and 10 minutes. Um, is Jeff- that high? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's high. Yeah, it's relatively high. Pretty sure it's that's high. Like, it's, it's, it's exercising, I believe. I mean, if this isn't exercise, no? what is? Yeah, I, I agree. Well, look, we're probably wrong about that because we don't have anyone who knows about that on here. Um, <laughs> Obviously not. <laughs> we, but hopefully we knew some other stuff. And uh, no, but this was a lot of fun. Um, I'm glad we could we could talk shop. These are conversations that I've been wanting to have with you about, about numbers in the sport and uh, it lived up to the, it lived up to the hype in my book, Jeff. So hope, hopefully we can do it again soon. And thanks Absolutely. again for coming on. Yeah. Thank you, Gil.